This is the Maxiao Leadership Podcast. So my own experience is, is interesting because, um, I mean, being uh, my mother being African-American and my father being Persian, especially in the late 70s, <laughs> I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And I was almost, uh, you know, as young as I was, I was almost embarrassed or shy or not shy, but more embarrassed and ashamed is a hard word to say. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but I was I was trying to hide who I was. One night, I came across the American Dental Association just released the latest statistics on the racial and ethnic uh, mix of the dental workforce. And it showed that 3.8% of dentists in the United States were Black. Just 3.8%, which is disproportionate to the number of Blacks in the United States. Uh, with Hispanic dentists, less than 5% and then Native American, American Indians, even less than 1%. And so I was just shocked. I said 3.8, and those numbers are the same as it was about 15 years ago. So nothing had changed in the diversity uh, makeup of, of dentists. So immediately right there, I wasn't even thinking, I just shared the post and, onto my personal page. And I said, this is the stat, these are the numbers, we need to change this. So whose kid can I mentor? I think a good question that sometimes I ask myself is, if I could do it all over again, would I do it the same way? And the answer is My guest today is one of the most committed and dedicated leader I know. Dr. Leila Haishaw is an owner of Tucson Smiles Pediatric Dentistry based in Tucson, Arizona. A practice was voted as Arizona's Daily Stars Reader's Choice for Best Pediatric Dentists and Tucson's Lifestyle Top Dentists. A board-certified pediatric dentist for two decades, she is an authority and advocate for children's oral health. She is the author of the Amazon bestseller Cavity Three kids. Dr. Haishaw holds fellowship in the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry, International College of Dentists, and will be inducted into the American College of Dentists this fall. Dr. Leila Haishaw is a champion for diversity in dentistry. She founded Diversity in Dentistry Mentorship, a nonprofit organization that encourages underrepresented students to explore dentistry through mentoring and enrichment experiences that facilitate their successful admission to dental school. Without further ado, let's welcome my friend, Dr. Leila Haishaw. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for the warm introduction. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, good morning, Leila. Really good to see you. Um, you know, I, 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 in the introduction, I tried to give a brief overview of your of, of your of your of your pedigree and but <laughs> what would be good is before we get into the detail of the of the podcast is that you introduce yourself a bit more to our audience and tell us a bit about a bit more about yourself oh well sure well i have to start off that i am a mother first and foremost and actually just went through a very traumatic experience last <laughs> week it was the hardest thing in my whole entire life 
<laughs> I had to take my firstborn and move her into a college, a university. Oh, last congratulations. Week. I know. So, yes, I'm still a mother of three, but I have one in college. And it does. It just changes the whole dynamic of the house and our family. But I'm excited. I know she's going to do great, great, great things. And uh, my other two are freshmen in high school. And um, yes, my two twins. So I'm a mother of twins married to the love of my life for the past two decades as well. I always tell everyone that um, I started my practice, moved to a new state and city, and got married all in the same summer. <laughs> but yes, as you mentioned, I've been practicing for uh, over two decades in Tucson. Um, but as much as I love my career in dentistry, and it has afforded me so many things that has been fulfilling in, in my personal life, my family, and being able to give to the community, I feel now a calling upon me to really, to just focus on this work of mentorship and, and, and mentoring the next generation of diverse leaders in dentistry. And that is where um, my nonprofit comes into play, which is called Diversity in Dentistry Mentorships. Um, it was, I started it in 2018, around the time that we first met, Max, and it became incorporated um, at the beginning of 2021. So we're a young nonprofit, but making big changes by really elevating our profession, um, by increasing the diversity, by reaching back further, getting to our youth early. Um, research has shown that students from historically underrepresented groups, which is defined as Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latinx, um, and Native American and um, Native, uh, Alaskans, all are part of this group that show that they determine that what they want to do for their career prior to entering college. So we want to expose the, the youth, middle school, high school students to dentistry. They don't have um, the opportunities to explore. Many times, of course, with the low percentage of dentists of color, they don't see a dentist that looks like them. Um, so that is what our, our mission is, to really strengthening that diversity pathway to, to increase the applicants who are in, in considering dentistry and then thus increase in enrollment rate. And Excellent. Have a, a no, that's a really noble cause. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> it takes a lot to explain. I'm going to work on that a little bit more. But yes, it's, it's truly a passion. And, and I have a, a a movement of dentists who are on this with this journey and this call to action to really make a difference. So thank you. Thank you. But then how did you become dentist? Why, why uh, dentist and not? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, another long story that I'll try to give you <laughs> the reader's diverse, uh, reader's uh, digest version. So actually, it wasn't a direct journey. I always say that it was a journey that had many stops, some layovers, some diverted trails. <laughs> but I knew when I was younger um, that I definitely had the empathy and drive to um, help others. I, I saw it in um, my mother, who was, wasn't in healthcare, but she did so much to sacrifice herself for me, my sisters in the community, my grandmother, who was an advocate in her community. I just knew I wanted to help others. And my mom um, raised me, my two sisters, as a single parent. And I saw her working so hard. She was a teacher, but yet, that wasn't enough to kind of raise her family. So she had 
two jobs. And I, it, we struggled a bit. Um, luckily, my grandmother was there to be able to stand in the gap when she was working later hours, um, be there to have a warm cooked meal on the dinner table, um, you know, go over our homework. But my mom, knowing how hard it was for her, she always, and I remember that conversation, especially um, a woman raising, a black woman raising her daughters that you're always gonna have to give work twice as hard to get half as far as a, as a black young woman. And so it instilled in me that I had to work really hard to achieve. And at the same time, she wanted me to find a career that I would have financial stability, security, not depend on anyone else, um, so that I could take care of myself. And what a lot of people don't know, though, is actually I'm half Persian. I was born in Iran, and it was during the time of the Iranian hostage crisis. So at the time I was born, but we had to leave the country. My father had to stay, but my father was a dentist. And so I think dentistry was in my blood and my DNA, but I didn't get to grow up seeing him as a dentist. I would only see him once every other year or so when he could come to the United States. So I never considered dentistry. I just figured, okay, healthcare, stable. Um, I, was, I love the STEM um, courses, science and math. I didn't love math so much, but I did love science. <laughs> so it was just, uh, what everyone recommend um, was to, to be a medical doctor. And so when to undergrad and a degree, getting a degree in sports medicine, because I used to figure skate, I had these dreams of being like the sports medical doctor for the Olympic figure skating team. <laughs> but really deep down in my soul, I didn't even really want to do medicine. I, I didn't want to do it, but I was doing it because I was something I had been ingrained that that was what I needed to do. And um, it wasn't until after graduating from undergraduate school that I finally got to go travel to Iran to visit my father for the first time since I was born. I mean, you know, almost 20 years after. And I got to see him at work as a dentist and using his hands. And he was a prosthodontist, which is a specialist who, um, who focuses on the aesthetics of dentistry um, and function such as crowns and bridge and dentures and really what we call cosmetic dentistry, but there is a specialty where they do another uh, two to three years of postgraduate, postdoctoral work after dental school. And just seeing the transformation of, of um, cases and, and also my father was, um, uh, an instructor at the dental school, the local dental school in Tehran, Iran. And I think from there I learned too of um, just the passion that he had for teaching. And I always say the mentors are teachers and role models. So that is how dentistry came about. Um, I came back to, to the States. I had to take a couple of other courses to apply to dental school. And yes, it was a year delayed, but I did it. And here we are now. <laughs> Oh, wow. Excellent. So, you know, everything has its roots and, you know, was building up in you with uh, the, the legacy from your parents. Yeah. Uh, your dad was a dentist. He was specializing in to what you can mm -hmm. cosmetic dentistry. Why yeah. did you go for pediatric dentistry? Uh, pediatric dentistry. Well, see, that's the thing that that's just in you. <laughs> when I, when I'm talking to mentees or 
uh, students who are considering specializing in pediatric dentistry. Like, and then they tell me, oh, they want to do pediatric dentistry because of the lifestyle or, you know, the dentistry that you do is different. That's one part of it. But if they don't say that they love kids, they're not going to succeed in the, in the profession and <laughs> in the specialty. I love kids. Um, I think being the eldest of two sisters by nine and 10 years. Yeah, I was much older than them. I was kind of the, the built-in babysitter. <laughs> I had to take them to and from school. I had to, uh, against my own will, <laughs> had to take them to you know dance lessons and the mall and pick them up. Because again, my mom was by herself and my grandmother wasn't driving. And so um, I, that was just a part of me, that responsibility and that leadership. Um, but also it was fun. It's, it's just fun. I just feel like it's kept me young all these years inside. And, um, but on the other side of it, pediatric dentistry is very different in its dentistry. Um, we have kind of a few specific things that we do pretty much all the time as far as the dental work. Um, but we also get a lot of experience in the hospital and sedation dentistry where we have just, you know, obviously some kids cannot sit still and keep their mouth open when they have a mouthful of decay when they're under the age of two and three. And I can go into a whole nother lecture as to why you have to take care of your baby teeth because you don't lose your baby molars till you're between the ages of 10 and 12. So a lot of educating. Um, but the biggest thing that I love now and it really hit home when I became a mother was um, how parents just need some extra information and tools to help their kids just make the right choices. As parents, um, we do all that we can to keep them healthy and safe. And we think we're feeding them things that are good for them, even though it says it's made with real fruit. But I'm going to tell you, gummy snacks that are say fruit snacks, they are not good for you. <laughs> um, and then I know the struggle of, you know, trying to brush your toddler's teeth as they're ripping and running and it, when I was a resident before I got married and had kids and parents would tell me, I just can't brush their teeth because they're just, they're all over the place. I can't do it. And I just never understood. I was like, really? You can't brush their teeth? <laughs> and then of course I got my own lesson very quickly once I became a mom. And um, so that's why pediatric dentistry, I love the education. I love being able to take care of the kids and really give them those skills early on um, um, taking care of their oral hygiene and their diet. So they grow up with the, those habits instilled and make them, um, you know, continue that proper hygiene as they grow up. Excellent. Now, <laughs> you know, one thing is to love what you do, which I can feel and you, you can communicate <laughs> that to us. And the other thing is to run a very successful practice, which is yeah. a business in itself. And, <laughs> You've been voted, you know, preferred dentist in Tucson uh, so many times. What's your secret for, for, for oh. running such a successful practice? Well, thank you. <laughs> and I will say, um, when I first started, this is very interesting. In Tucson, I was the first female, first woman, pediatric dentist um, to own a practice in Tucson. So there were, I lost count now, I think there were like five, maybe six male pediatric dentists, half of them were uh, closer to the end, or end stage of their careers and were kind of slowing down. So I came in at a perfect time where moms were excited to be able to take their kids to another mom. And so it quickly grew. It grew really fast. Uh, the trajectory just went straight up. 
And I will tell you now is different than 20 years ago when I came out of dental school. Um, we didn't get a lot of education or uh, information resources or anything around the business of dentistry. And it very much is a business of dentistry if you open a practice. Um, and even on some leadership skills as well. So I think they're doing much better in that um, area now for our new graduates. Um, so I came out and I knew at first I wasn't sure, I, you know, the whole imposter syndrome that many women confront and, 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 you know, wrestle with the first year, I didn't know the area and I really didn't think I would, was smart enough to be able to open start a practice from scratch and, and not just start it, but run it. And so I worked in a group practice and it was there that I really started to notice that, well, I wouldn't quite do it this way, or I feel like patient experience would be better if you did it this way. And, and I knew at that time I needed to go ahead and start my own practice. And I did, but again, that imposter syndrome that comes and I always talk about it with my mentees because um, we always forget to look back and see all that we've achieved, we just kind of focus on what we think are that you know negative self-talk in our head that tells us we can't. Um, but because I was so nervous about it, I actually joined up or I, uh, I started to work with a management company. Now, a lot of business leaders will have a management company to handle the HR and stuff like that. But this one <laughs> was taking uh, 60% of my profit <laughs> wow. to manage my practice, 60%. I mean, yes, when I look back on it, it's like ridiculous. I think I even like blacked out, blocked out all of the other <laughs> terrible things. And, and plus it was like a seven year contract. But anyway, we won't talk about that anymore because we always learn from our experiences, but definitely uh, that was a delay in growing my <laughs> wealth and income in my practice, but I learned from it. And, um, and so over the years, it, it grew, like I said, grew quickly. I had to uh, employ an associate to help with the demand of the patients that were coming, calling in for new patients. And it grew, um, it looked like we we're gonna need a second location. And so at the same time, my associate decided to buy in and she bought into half of the practice and uh, we've been partners ever since. I mean, that was 2009. <laughs> yeah, I started the practice in 2003. Three years later, she came on. And then after that, um, in 2009, we became partners and we grew to three practices. And then um, in 2020, we decided, you know, she's a mother of growing kids with my, as well as myself, decided to kind of slow down and we did sell one. So now we're partners in two practices. <laughs> oh, congratulations. That, that, oh, thank that, you. That, that's, uh, and we have very much different um responsibilities you know nice. you know I uh, she is still like I still don't love doing the numbers and everything so that's great we complement each other she she looks at the numbers and schedules and and I'm out to recruit the new patients talking to the referring doctors and the pediatrician and getting out in the community and educating so it's, it's, it's been great <laughs> you, you talked about the leadership that went into your journey you know and mm -hmm. uh, how you look after your sisters and you know in developing your practice this podcast yeah. is about leadership it's it's for right. corporate executive entrepreneur who want to grow in their leadership skills mm -hmm. what is your definition of leadership and why is it important in what what you do 
Well, you know, I have to say that at first in leadership, I just thought it was really kind of um, encouraging one um, and to lead by example. But it wasn't until I was able to participate in the American Dental Association. Um, they have a program of the Institute of Diversity and Leadership. And I learned there, um, Dr. Ashley Rosette, from Duke that leadership is defined as influencing others towards an objective. <laughs> and um, from that, I also know deep in my heart that a true leader has to be an empathetic leader. They have to be able to, to lead effectively, to understand where those who are working with them or following them are, how they're feeling, uh, what their circumstances are so that we can work collectively towards that objective. So it's not just about helping the leader succeed, but helping the organization or the company, any the nonprofit to succeed for the common good. Excellent. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. So influencing others towards a common a common good. Mm -hmm. That that's uh that's really, really good <laughs> definition of of leadership yeah. but then mm -hmm. you are taking your leadership into a very specific di direction you mentioned it at the beginning of, of our talk today around diversity and mentoring mm -hmm. for the, for the how did that interest came about why why did you start yeah. to you know well i remember the that? moment yeah i remember the moment max and i and i also when i reflect back on everything i really feel like this mentorship kind of saved my life, honestly. Um, at the time in 2018, I was just burned out. You know, a lot of leaders, business owners, dentists <laughs> um, get to that point after you've been doing something for so long that they're, you, you start to get exhausted. But I realized my burnout came from not setting and protecting my boundaries. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very empathetic. <laughs> I cry at commercials and any sad, you know, movie. But um, I also, though, because of that ingrained sense of having to do everything, to do twice as much, to help, to give as I was growing up, and, you know, to, my mother was trying to help protect me and prepare me, but at the same time, I just always felt like, it wasn't enough just to participate in activities in school. I had to be the president <laughs> of my class. I had to be the founder of this organization. I always kind of did more and more for that validation and hoping that I would be seen and heard. And so with that, my boundaries were, they were non-existent. <laughs> and and we need to as healthcare providers, and I will say for leaders in any, capa any capacity, that if you don't set those boundaries and you're not, and you're saying yes to everything and everyone, then you become exhausted, you're spread thin, you begin to have resentment. And I was feeling that because um, I just, what was necessary for me to try to keep the practice running after I, had a, um, you know, faced with a medical health challenge. And I, I came back sooner than I should have um, just because I was worried what the patients would say. I was worried about my staff and my team and making sure that the office was running and, you know, their livelihoods. But I was just at a point though, that I was, because I didn't take care of myself by saying no and what I needed, 
that I was just burned out. So I say all that to say <laughs> that one night, instead of doing the charts or whatever I was probably supposed to be doing, I was just thumbing through social media on Facebook. And then I came across the American Dental Association just released the latest statistics on the racial and ethnic uh, mix of the dental workforce. And it showed that 3.8% of dentists in the United States were black, just 3.8%, which is disproportionate to the number of blacks in the United States. Uh, with Hispanic dentists, less than 5%. And then Native American, American Indians, even less than 1%. And so I was just shocked. I said 3.8. And, and those numbers are the same as it was about 15 years ago. So nothing had changed in the diversity uh, makeup of, of dentists. So immediately right there, I wasn't even thinking, I just shared the post and onto my personal page. And I said, this is the stat, these are the numbers, we need to change this. So whose kid can I mentor? And then Max, I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> it was like, people were texting me, sending me direct messages, replying to the comments, oh, would you talk to my grandson? What about my daughter? I never considered dentistry or my granddaughter wants to be a medical doctor, but let me tell her to talk to you. And then I was like, well, this is what parents and grandparents, teachers, counselors, counselors, especially high school counselors, because they never talk about dentistry. But in these communities, especially communities of color, that we need to get in and talk to these kids and let them be exposed to the world of dentistry. And um, after that, then I decided to start a Facebook group and I was just trying to get, find a, a platform to bring my colleagues and then parents and grandparents and teachers to be able to come in where they could ask questions, where we could share resources. And from there it birthed the Diversified Dentistry Youth Summit. Uh, we had our inaugural event last year, which was spectacular. We brought in middle and high school students and they got to get their hands in the lab and port up models and feel the stone and the materials and, and learn about it. And we'll have our next one, the second annual, which will be on Friday, October 28th at AT Steele University um, at the Arizona School of Dental Dentistry and Oral Health. Um, and I'm looking so forward to it each time we've had what well, we, we had that last year and we had some online virtual kind of workshops, but I always hear back from these kids it's like, I've never saw a dentist who looked like me. I never considered dentistry and now I will. And so it's just so fulfilling. <laughs> it's just it's so fulfilling. Yeah. So that is where that came from. Well, that, that's really powerful. I really like what you described now. You, you saw a post and then immediately <laughs> you decided to do something about it. You know, sharing it at first and right. hearing what people say to you and that, that's true leadership, you know, leaders like to solve problems and commit to serve others. Uh, really, really, really great example. In, oh, in thank doing you. that, you know, what did you find was the main barriers for underrepresented minorities? Mm -hmm. We're talking about well, dentistry, but maybe mm -hmm. it can apply to other STEMs or other professions. W what are the main barriers that you see? Well, there's a few. Um... Uh, the, the obvious ones are systemic racism. <laughs> it's just there, you know, these institutions that were not built for people of color um, have a way of making it difficult 
want to kind of get in uh, and then just to the retention of it. And, and I'll explain it more because a lot of people don't, don't quite understand, but there's a whole process to getting into dental school. You have to have shadowing hours. That means you need to be able to call up a dentist, ask if you can come into their practice and shadow them for a few hours. Now, when you're looking at communities of uh, color and students uh, who don't have dentists, one in their community, or they don't have like the, the uncle or the cousin or the friend's dad, or mom who happens to be a dentist who can easily pick up the phone. It's like, hey, my daughter's thinking about dentistry. Can she come shadow? It's a little bit harder for some of these students um, to have to cold call or, or work around asking. So that's one thing that our um, nonprofit will do is to provide a network for them so that we can get them plugged into these, these practices and get them the shadowing hours. And then to um, coming in and interviewing, there is some, uh, you know, bias that that plays a role in how the interviewer is is scoring them. Um, that happens even before the interview in the application process. Um, there's been plenty of studies have shown that some of the interviews don't make it. Or excuse me, the applications don't make it to the interview based on the the way the cultural sound of their name or if they feel this ethnic name. Right, and then there's the financial barrier as well. We, you know, black and brown communities um, on a level statistically um, more so are living below the poverty level. So it is difficult um, for them to, to be able to afford to even apply to dental school. On average, I think now just a couple of schools, it's gonna probably cost about $1,400 just to apply. And then you have your, you know, white counterpart or the majority counterpart, I should say, you know, that um, is able to, not all, but you know, there's a, a handful that are able to apply to more like 10 or more. So right there, their chances are better than that, the one student who can only apply to one or two. And so we're trying to get scholarship money so that we can get them, we call it one more chance so they can apply to at least one more dental school. So these barriers uh, are in, you know, institutional racism. Um, once you're in the, in the school too, coming out, you're coming out with much higher debt. We have uh, research that's been conducted to see um, the, the populations of students who come out with less debt and who those who come out with more and those are historically underrepresented under racial ethnic groups come out with much higher debt. And then Max, it plays into, if you're gonna start a practice, if you have higher debt, then it's gonna be less likely that the bank is going to finance you the capital to start a practice. Then maybe perhaps you're working in the community practice, uh, community centers, which have a lower pay scale um, and less insurance reimbursement. And so just that accumulation of wealth is just different. Um, so there's a lot of things we could dig way deeper into it. But anyway, I think that is why it's important that we bring this conversation around so we can at least acknowledge it. And once we can acknowledge it, then it will take more than just the dentists of color to, to be mentors. We need everyone. It's incumbent upon all of us to recognize that and reach back and help guide these students just for the the possibility, you know, is just to give them opportunities 
just the opportunities, that's it. One of the quotes I, I read not too long ago, it was actually on mentor.org's website. And it was, potential is equally distributed. Opportunities are not. And it really hit me there. It's like, that is so true because we all, it's like our birthright to be able to say, are we, we have the potential, potential to dream and strive for whatever it is that we believe we can do. But for those who have access to certain opportunities are gonna be more likely to succeed in reaching their fullest potential. Absolutely, it's about creating the opportunities for others and uh, yeah. you know, giving them that chance so that they can, they can strive because that's all they are asking for. And uh, what has been your own experience, you know, overcoming those barriers so mm -hmm. that when people see you, you know, they don't just think <laughs> that, oh, okay, this is one in the millions. No, they can really <laughs> see themselves yeah. you know, doing the same. What can you share about your own experience? Well, my own experience is, is interesting because, um, I mean, being uh, my mother being African-American and my father being Persian, especially in the late 70s, <laughs> I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And I was almost, uh, you know, as young as I was, I was almost embarrassed or shy or not shy, but more embarrassed and ashamed is a hard word to say. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but I was, I was trying to hide who I was um, because I didn't want to get discriminated because, you know, I never was called a racial slur. Uh, I could kind of, as we say, pass because I was fair skinned. But then I saw my friends who were, who were being called uh, out of their names. And so I kind of didn't want to be associated with that. And then we had the hostage crises and how what everyone was thinking about Iranians. And I just, well, I was an Iranian too. So um, I felt like over the years, because of that, just chipping away, these microaggressions is chipping away, that I kind of muted my voice until, until in the last few years that I really found my voice by finding my passion and my calling, that I was like, I can fight for somebody else. <laughs> it might be hard for me to, to stand up for myself, but don't mess with anyone else that I care about. Um, so, you know, it, as recent as, well, I would say about two years ago, when I wrote a piece um, on why mentoring matters in dentistry, um, it was published in the American Dental Association uh, news letter, it's the ADA news. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I just kind of shared what we've been talking about today. And I got a letter in the mail. And, you know, when I received it, I was at, the, my, at my office, I was in between patients. And I almost didn't open it because the way I looked, it was the it was uh, the envelope was written in hard strikes of the pen stroke, uh, pen pen strokes, that just had a weird just this feeling around it just kind of put a my stomach dropped, and there was no return address on it, um, and it was just it was just unmarked. So, but I guess my better judgment, I did open it, and I began to read all these things from from a dentist. Um, just, just throwing all sorts of insults at me, um, saying that because I didn't go to a historically black college or university that I didn't have the right to speak on diversity, um, that my practice wasn't down and like the, the ghetto of Tucson, 
<laughs> that I wasn't caring for my people and, and, and trying to make a judgment around who I was without even knowing me. Um, and, and, and even to the point where, you know, my picture on the article was once where my headshot was taken with my hair was straight because that's another microaggression. I was told by the photographer to straighten my hair so I would look more professional. Um, and since then, all my other headshots have been with my natural curly hair. <laughs> but he, he even commented on the picture. He's like, I had to look back to, to see if the person you were describing as a curly haired dentist connecting with her curly haired patient was really you. And so I know that when you are anyone, any leader, is um, using their voice to enact positive change that is might be uncomfortable for some, that there's gonna be some things that we have to navigate through and, and confront and deal with. Um, it was hard, it hurt, but um, you know, in, with that, this was done for a reason. I know God put it there um, so that I can find my strength I found the allyship that I needed to, to elevate the work that, that we are doing and it's helped broaden our reach. So it was a blessing in disguise, but at the same time, it does hurt. And I know I'm not alone um, when having to face uh, microaggressions and biases like this. Um, it, it, it's hard, but, um, but it's life, right? And, we're, and that's why we're all working to try to make some change. No, absolutely. I, I know it's very difficult, you know, and uh, that's something that I've I've learned, and it's it's difficult to communicate. You know, in my own experience, you know, different people who have different experience, mm -hmm. and um, especially in the space of diversity, uh, some people will feel that they are they are more disadvantaged than others, and uh, whatever you say, you would not always have. Um, you know, so sometimes people you are trying to to serve some group who feel that you are not, you know, legitimate to have that conversation. What, right. what you are describing, but I think at the end of the day, you know, you are doing something for some people and you are helping those people, and it's them that you need to look at, not the people who don't want your your, wow. your help or who don't feel that they they need to be supported. You know, it's the one person that has their life changed by the action that you are doing that you should focus on. And I think that that at least how I, I see it and that what we do as leaders. Um, thank you now, for that reminder. <laughs> I will remember no, Thank that. you. Well, <laughs> no, the role of leader is really to create a culture that fosters diversity. And mm -hmm. what, what what your recommendation to leaders, whether in university, schools, corporates, mm -hmm. uh, environment, to really create that diversity and diverse culture. Right, well, I definitely think that there's a few things keep, and all kind of these, these things that I think of will help you in leadership in any capacity if you're trying to increase diversity or, or help the culture. But communication, of course, communication is always so, so important in how you are being intentional and what you're saying, um, and, and I'm speaking of a leader to like uh, their mentee or their team, and also a commitment. I mean, a commitment to put in the time to really get to know the people on your team or get to know your mentee. Um, it's not just like a one and done. The mentorship is a relationship. 
that you're building, um, your team, your team members, they're, you're creating a relationship. It's not this transactional, you work for me and I pay you and that's it. That's where leadership fails and that's where your business will fail. But when you make a commitment to really get to know them, to really um, meet them at where they are, um, I think that's important. And also the courage, um, having the courage to really look within inside yourself for biases. We all have them, but is you know on a serious note, is we we do need to make sure that we're aware of them. Um, it goes into hiring. You know, if you have an interviewee of uh, someone from a, a person of color, what are your biases about that? And are you giving them a chance? What about your other team members? Are they giving them a harder time? Are they onboarding her the same way? Um, I think about you know dental assistants coming on as they would someone else. Are they trying to talk to them in the break room or are they just assuming that she wouldn't feel comfortable with them? So um, the, the it, it starts from the top, it starts with the leader and they really have to make sure people are looking within themselves to find that courage, culture, I mean, excuse me, that courage on um, being able to, 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 to treat them fairly. And, um, and then finally, I just think also just celebrating, just celebrating um, their wins because um, their win in their personal life is a, is a win for everyone because you're in there and you're, and you're instilling in them and you're building them up and you're rooting for them. I always say, as far as my mentees go, I, I cry their tears <laughs> and, I, and I celebrate their cheers. Um, so just really celebrating with them, lets them know that you sincerely care about them. Again, it gets, goes down to the relationship and that that bond that you're developing because that's when they're going to be with you the loyalty the retention and and then the success will follow from there i was talking to a colleague of mine some time ago we we're talking about you know the actions that companies and others make around diversity and a lot is done i have to say we've been done a lot around women's um representation in mm -hmm. uh, in boards in in companies Mm -hmm. and, um, she was telling me you know yes that's good but um as a black woman my mm -hmm. main issue is not that i'm a woman it's that i am black mm -hmm. and i feel like not enough is being done around mm -hmm. that what what, right. what what what's your experience around 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 mm -hmm. that? well you know um definitely i think women of color in corporate America or corporate nation, <laughs> I'm, I'm here in the United States, but um, it's, it's probably just a little bit different than the experience that I have just being in, in private practice. But for corporate, in the corporate world, one of my, women of color and everyone else needs to redefine what power looks like. Yes, we're, we're used to seeing, um, and in, you know, a subconscious, subconsciously our, our biases that we expect to see a white male as a as a head of power. But with the women of color, there's this intersection of both gender and race that they have to, it's almost like that double sword of things that they have to fight through. But we really need to redefine what, what's a, a powerful leader looks like because Oh, we have, as women of color, can, can see things from such a different perspective. 
And also because of our different, our makeup, um, I think we're in closer proximity to other communities, right? And audiences or anyone that will help to, to grow with sales or whatever it is in your company that you're doing um, that could bring that perspective to the table. And so um, until, you know, those at the table can realize that, then they're the ones that are, are hurting because they're not succeeding by um, rising up these women into leadership to really make, the, make a difference and succeed in the, in the corporation. So I, I definitely see that there is a difference um, of a little of more barriers that women of color do need to to deal with. And when we I was speaking of imposter syndrome earlier, of course, it's very high for women, but it's even higher for women of color imposter syndrome. So a lot of them feel that maybe they shouldn't even um, be at at the head at the table. Um, oh gosh, and I read. I am sorry, I can't cite where I read it too, but that. Um, because we're so used to working so hard and knowing that um, there's limited seats at, at the infamous table, that sometimes there is even a bit of competitiveness because we feel like we're both fighting or we're all fighting for one seat. Instead of uh, celebrating the fact that we're all capable, we're all qualified and overqualified and much. I mean, black women especially, they are the highest demographic of college graduates now in the United States. Um, so we're more than qualified, but yet we still feel like we're all fighting for that one spot instead of making sure that we're opening it up more to get more women in there, more women of color. That's a great question. It's something I really wanna explore. I really feel that, um, that they're just like me, where my voice was muted and silenced, that I think a lot of women of color are experiencing that. Um, so I really would like to build a, a community of women of color to talk about boundaries and leadership. You know what else? <laughs> Negotiation skills. <laughs> All these things that we were kind of taught not to deal with um, and that we didn't have a, a right to even ask for more. Um, so, so these are things that I feel women of color, especially in dentistry and healthcare and medicine, um, could really benefit from. Wow, excellent. Yeah, me thinking. Oh my gosh. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can't believe that uh, we are coming to the end of our conversation soon, Leila. Um, <laughs> there's one question I'll, I ask all my guests that is, mm -hmm. you know, what is the one question that you wish I would ask you and then I didn't ask? And how would you have answered it? Oh, gosh. I think. A good question that sometimes I ask myself is, if I could do it all over again, would I do it the same way? And the answer is yes. <laughs> because um, I think, you know, now looking past, looking back, I probably, oh, I could have done that differently, or I could have done that, I would have saved me. But everything is meant to unravel the way it should, to, to shape me, mold me to who I am now, all the wrong turns all the no's or the things like I was started off earlier in the analogy of my journey and traveling and getting to the end result. Well, I still feel like I'm growing and still evolving. And I think if I knew of all the things that God has planned for me in the future, I'd be too scared to even take a step forward. So I wouldn't change a thing. 
Excellent. No, really like that. <laughs> so <laughs> to continue the conversation, what, what are three books that you will recommend our audience today? Okay. Um, well, definitely Essentialism by Greg McLean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm an essentialist. <laughs> yeah, are you right? <laughs> and I need to reread it because I always fall off the wagon by, um, you know, eliminate those things that are not as important so that you can focus on what is most important. Um, also, the one thing, I mean, of course, these are all like self-development books, but when I was going through that <laughs> time in my life, <clears throat> I had so many, so many of those. And then, excuse me, <clears throat> and my third book, oh gosh, I have so many. Um, Goodness, I think I would recommend reading um, Jesus Calling is um, a devotional book. Sarah, Sarah Knight, I believe is the author. Please forgive me. You'll have to correct it in the, in the notes if I have it wrong. But, um, you know, I really appreciate the quiet time I have in the mornings. I, I, I try to silence the mind and try to listen to my spirit and, and, the direction God has for me on that day. And so by starting with a devotional, it helps. It helps me kind of uh, get my day started right, find a scripture that's listed in it. And um, yeah, it just really helps to make the day start on the right note and and prepare me when things don't always go the way they I want them to, that um, this too shall pass and I can just capture my breath and just get recentered. <laughs> Excellent. And I'll have one book, Cavity Free Kids. <laughs> yes. Every parent should get it. <laughs> How to raise your kids cavity free from birth through their teenage years. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Leila. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry if I was long-winded. <laughs> this was the Maxiao Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining us. To listen to future episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Until next time, keep being the leader everybody trusts and respects.